This is the AMA Los Angeles podcast. Are you ready? Welcome to the AMA Los Angeles podcast. I'm Joel Metzger. We are recording a live panel tonight at the WeWork location in Culver City. The event is called The Future of Digital Advertising, and the panelists are Mark McCabe of Choosel, Olivia Bias, VP of Marketing at Goodway Group, and Robert Brill, founder of Brill Media. The moderator is LA Chapter President Philip Reventish. Let's join the conversation in progress. So I'm going to have each panelist uh, introduce themselves, and then I have a question. So uh, Robert, let's start with you, sir. Hi, everyone. Can you guys hear me? Okay. Uh, my name is Robert Brill. I am the founder and CEO of Brill Media. Uh, we're positioned as a hyper-local ad agency, uh, and we're a white-label provider of programmatic buying services to other agencies around the country. Okay, so I'm going to ask you a question, and that was so fast, I, I don't Sorry. even have. I'll vamp. Just give me a word. That's right. So, um, Robert, I know one of the key elements of your company is to help educate your clients about programmatic advertising. Yes. So can you tell us just a little bit about your approach to educating your clients? Sure. I mean, you know, and we're going to talk about this on the panel, but there's so much jargon and stuff in the ether around programmatic <coughs> advertising. And, you know, a lot of clients don't even really understand what programmatic means. It's data and automation to make smarter ad-serving decisions. That's my very simplified version of it. Um, and so we help them like talk about the jargon. We're in some cases we're coaches, we're uh, we're therapists, we are, uh, <laughs> you know, it's like we hold your hand and, and we we tell you it's going to be okay because we've been doing this for many years, and um, it's really about helping our clients understand what programmatic is, what it isn't, to identify all the logos in that you know in the eye charts that we've been seeing, and we've been helping clients just like understand what they do, what they don't do what all the companies do, talk about the jargon, and mitigate a lot of the stress around programmatic advertising. And a lot of that is like a four to eight hour training around programmatic. Um, and so that's, that's fundamentally what we do. It's a lot of just therapy and talk and education around the space. Excellent, thank you. Olivia. Hello everyone, I'm Olivia Bias. I'm VP of Marketing for the Goodway Group. And what the Goodway Group does is we work with agencies and advertisers to help plan and execute all of their digital media, which is mostly programmatic. And sometimes when you think of programmatic, you just think of banner ads. But it's really everything you buy and sell through an exchange, programmatic, search, social, uh, any kind of paid media, we do it. So their tagline, and I love this, is Honestly Smart Digital. Yes. I love that. And tell us, uh, tell us what that tagline represents and the fact that they've been around for 86 years. So how did you guys morph into programmatic? It is true. So it might be a little bit longer than the two minutes you want to give me here <laughs> if I told you the full story. But it's true. Uh, our company was founded in 1929. And I think I'm pretty much, we're pretty much the only company in ad tech that can say that. Uh, <laughs> Huh? Yeah, exactly. So we made the tra we started as a print marketing company out of Jenkintown, Pennsylvania. That's where our headquarters are based. And um, over the years, we we have helped advertisers and marketers with print, and we've evolved as consumption has evolved. So in 2006, we made the switch to digital, and it was a little bit of transition where we did both, and now we're 100% digital. Um, we're over 400 employees across the U.S. Uh, we do a lot of auto QSR and run a lot of Honestly Smart Digital. Excellent. Yeah. Mark? Honestly Smart. All right. Hello, everybody. Um, so my voice is gone. We're a growing company, and that means getting into L.A. and telling all the agencies what we do. And I think that's why my voice has left me. Um, but we're based out of Denver. We help independent small, medium-sized agencies advertise online. And the way we do that is give them access to the best um, programmatic technology available with no contract and no minimum. We've built a technology that helps them access the exchanges for real-time bidding um, so that they can advertise to a very niche audience without all of the technological road bumps that usually leave people in the dark. 
um, that are only usually reserved for large agencies. Um, and I think that's, that's what we've done to help people succeed in digital advertising is make it easier. Excellent. Thank you. So we are including some slides tonight. A lot of times we don't include slides in our, in our presentations. One of the things that I want to ask is, how knowledgeable are people in the audience tonight about programmatic? Are there people, how, how many people feel they know programmatic pretty well and know what it's about? Okay. How about know uh, a little bit, but are really here to learn tonight? Right? Okay. So the majority of the crowd, because that, that's going to help us tonight. So I grabbed this from Marketing Week. And just to kind of help put it into, into perspective that it's not just you guys. And, and I was very intimidated by the term programmatic advertising. As a content creator, I didn't know what that meant. It's like, oh, something I should know about, but I don't know what it means. And that's one reason why we wanted to have this event tonight, so people can feel more comfortable about what these folks do and so we can all learn. And part of our promotion was you can have great content, but it's worthless without great distribution. And that's part of what we're doing here tonight. So we've, I found these quotes. I thought it was really interesting, and it's here to stay. So 70% of US marketers say they've bought media using programmatic advertising technology. So it's here, it's not going away. All right, so what I thought we would do is have our panel walk through some of these terms. Again, that's why I wanted to ask you know, the, the, the knowledge base of our audience tonight. So um, if, if the panel could just take turns w walking through some of this. Um, Mark, I think you've got the mic. Why don't we yeah, start sure, out we with what is a content publisher server? What is it? That might be some jargon, <laughs> to be honest. Um, so we're a DSP. We're a demand side platform. We're the number two there. We help you as an agency or as an advertiser reach people as they browse the internet. And, and I want to simplify this because, <clears throat> like Philip is saying, it's really kind of been hyped up, maybe it's a lot of jargon, maybe it's difficult, but in, in, the, in a purest form, <clears throat> sorry guys, if you show up on CNN.com, um, the page loads, and those ad units are blank until you show up, and when you show up, you might have shopped for brown shoes, and those brown shoes are going to follow you because you're a cookie, you're a person, you're a unique identifier online. Um, so a retargeting company, like maybe AdRoll is pretty popular for retargeting, um, they'll say, cookie number 4693, just shop for brown shoes. Let's show this cookie and ad as they load CNN.com or even cats.com. Because it doesn't matter where you show up, but we can bid on you as a person. And that's what a DSP does. Choosel, the Trade Desk, Goodway Group, everyone in our like, group of companies helps make sure that you're seeing relevant ads. Um, so that's really what it is, simplified. Ad exchanges are what happens, they make the exchange happen between the publisher who's saying someone's loading our page to the buyer, someone who's buying that ad, if it's Nike or Reebok or whoever it is. So Olivia, what's, what's an ad exchange? Can you weigh in on that? Yeah, I think when you think of an ad exchange, you need to think of ad exchanges and ad networks at the same time. You need to understand the business model. So ad network in general and there's a lot of jargon. Everyone sometimes has different meetings. But in general, I think a popular definition is an ad network refers to, it's kind of an old term where you had a company and they would have a side of their business that managed the publisher side. So they would go talk to CNN or Business Insider or whatever website and they would manage that whole publisher side and then you had this whole other side of the business that managed the demand side and they would work on getting advertisers and this was all done by people different sales people selling to different sides of the equation so that is the ad network model and then me as an advertiser I would go to the demand side and I would say okay I want to buy on your ad network you have a lot of auto sites so you have a lot of news sites and then it was all a very manual transaction. You know, I would email my rep, they would email me back an IO, mm -hmm. I would right. sign it, scan it in, email it back, send them the creative, you know, it was all very manual. So an ad exchange is the digital version of that, that whole process. It, this is all done through software now. You upload everything, you put in your parameters, you hit play, and that's what it is. So Robert, what's the difference between that kind of exchange and a private exchange? Who's private? Right, right. So um, is this resonating? You guys get the, okay, supply and demand. So a private exchange, 
um, is when I as an advertiser or a representative of an advertiser want different inventory with more filters, more proprietary data that comes from the publisher or better inventory that the publisher is reserving and not making available through these open exchanges. And so as a result, with a private marketplace, I get to go to a publisher or a group of publishers and say, I want a very specific type of inventory. Maybe I want a group of food-related properties. And I only want the ads to appear above the fold, right? You load the page above the fold. And so as a result, I get to identify a unique group of inventory that I want to purchase that, um, that fits my needs. And that's a private marketplace. And a private marketplace, or what, what, what are we talking about, private exchange? So that private deal allows me to access different types of inventory. But fundamentally, programmatic advertising is about supply and demand. The reason programmatic advertising exists is because it was inefficient in around 2008. It was inefficient for Yahoo and Google to sell their inventory uh, through humans, because wow. humans are slow. Algorithms are a lot faster. And as a result, it's better to get 25 cents for 1,000 impressions than zero. So with Google and Yahoo having so much inventory available in the marketplace, they just said, OK, let's do this. Let's make it available to anyone who wants to buy. Let's make supply and demand, basic marketplace economics, be the factor that determines the cost of that inventory. And inventory starts to rise and fall depending on the needs of the advertiser. So as a result, the advertiser who's looking for someone who's interested in buying guitars, if your advertiser is Guitar Center, that person's going to be a lot more worthwhile to you than me. I don't play an instrument. So the advertiser who finds a person who's interested in a guitar will pay a lot more for that person than a pet shop advertiser, for example. So there's this dichotomy of, of pricing that is fundamental to the nature of programmatic advertising. And real-time bidding, RTB, is the exchange or is the uh, mechanism that these transactions occur at. So fundamentally, every impression has a price, high or low. Every advertiser needs to find an infinite opportunity, set of opportunities to reach a, a specific user. And this all happens at the speed of algorithms and automation. So when an ad loads, it takes 200 milliseconds for the ad to load. Data gets sent back and forth between the, uh, the publisher and the advertiser. We know who you are. And then the bidding begins, and in 200 milliseconds, the ad runs. And these auctions are happening billions of times a day. Wow. So, Olivia, I, it may seem obvious, but what is a guaranteed ad impression? So I think of guaranteed ad impressions in association with the private marketplace or private exchange. Okay. So it, generally, the open exchange, when you're just out there bidding on the inventory, it's not guaranteed. You may win, you may lose. But when you enter into these private deals, it's more, uh, it's kind of like that old ad network model, but through a piece of software. And uh, that's what that is. And you know, as we're talking about all these terms, we're talking about ad exchanges, DSPs, right. we're not talking about how they fit together. So I wanna talk about that a little bit, if that's okay. And can I bring up a slide? Yeah, sure. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to explain that slide. <laughs> but this is the landscape. So again, if people are feeling intimidated, so a lot of people are, right? Yeah. I mean, there isn't a good graphic for programmatic. It's all confusing. But the, the main thing is, so you have your DSP, your demand side platform. That's the piece of software that sits on top. That's what controls everything. And then underneath are is all of the inventory, all the websites that plug into the DSP. So those are your SSPs, supply side platforms. Those all plug into the DSP. And then the SSP is composed of all the different ad exchanges that plug into that. So it's like this three-tier clear as mud system. <laughs> <laughs> so Mark, how does Choosel fit into that landscape? I mean, sure. part of what your company is saying is that you're making it easy for people to operate. So how are you cutting through that to, to get above the shrubbery, so to speak? So Olivia explained it really well. There's a DSP, there's an SSP. <clears throat> we make it easy for an agency to, to, to negotiate those two or three or four different things. I want to hit a mom in San Jose who drives a Chrysler Pacifica who has two kids in household. 
our technology ports in multiple data providers, Oracle, BlueKai, Experian, uh, Evite, to tell us that they've got kids in household because they just created a birthday card for their daughter. Uh, everyone sells their data. No one's, no one's safe. No one's private. So just get over that. Uh, so all that data is available. And you can buy that data, and you can advertise against that data. And our technology makes it easy to do that. So you can buy that woman who has two kids and a, and a minivan who lives in San Jose, uh, and you can make it easy, and you can check and see if it costs a dollar or $2 CPM to reach her, and then you can check and see if she comes to your site, and you can check and see if she bought your stuff because of that ad. And to simplify that, that's simplifying what we do, and that's programmatic advertising. Kind of, yeah? What do you guys think? Is there a question about that? Because that was, that was a little simplified. But at a very simplified level, that's what we do. So what I'd like to talk a little bit about, and the last slide I had up was from the Interactive um, Advertising Bureau. Are pe do people in the audience know what that is? They set the, the standards for not only um, technology and technical standards, but also things along the lines of contracts. How do you present a, a, a insertion order in digital media? So they set the standards for the industry, right? So some of the things that, that they're talking about um, for programmatic is transparency. So that's, that's one thing I'd like to talk about with the panel right now. When we're talking about transparency within programmatic, what are we talking about? Robert? So transparency, um, like everything, it's, it's depending on where you are in the landscape, you'll get different layers of transparency. Sorry, I have a mint or a cough drop. Um, and depending on what you invest in, you'll get more or less, more or fewer levels of transparency. So transparency is about which sites are you running? How much are you paying for your data? How much are you paying for the media cost? How much is being spent on the platform you buy from? Right, because there, there are different costs allocated to all these different elements. How much are you paying to ensure that your ad gets, is viewable? If you buy from an ad network, uh, Quantcast as an example, um, you oftentimes get, get, you're paying on a flat CPM, right? $5 to reach your audience. Well, there's arbitrage, and that's, that's the way a lot of these ad networks make money. So they'll buy the inventory for two, three, four dollars, they'll sell it to you for five, and they make a nice margin. Um, if you're a trading desk, and a trading desk is really any group that runs these uh, programmatic technologies like demand side platforms like Choosel, MediaMath, Trade Desk, we're a trading desk. And with those tools, you get to understand how much you're paying for each of those elements that go into the supply chain. So, you're, so the question is, what's the supply chain? The media cost, the data cost, the viewability cost, so on and so forth. So if you're a trading desk or you have a seat on one of these exchange of one of these DSPs like Choosel, you get a, a great deal of transparency into how your campaign is run, but there are trade-offs. The trade-off is you actually have to do the work, but because you're doing the work of doing the daily optimization for your campaigns, You've invested in a team to run these campaigns. You're paying the minimum spends, with, with the exception of Choosel that doesn't have minimum spends, but w these other platforms that do. You're making an investment in your business, but in return for that investment, one of the things you get is a lot more transparency in your campaigns. And then the, the advertiser, if you're an advertiser, you can also have a great deal of transparency. Uh, uh, Netflix is a great example. They do their own programmatic buying. Um, anyone who has access to a demand side platform like Choosel will access a lot of data. And in fact, um, it's more data than any one human can actually look at. So the best demand, demand side platforms organize that data in a way that makes it easy to surface up the points of information um, that are critical for you and your enterprise. And you give me five different enterprises, agencies, advertisers, or ad networks, you're going to have five very different types of needs um, and so the best demand side platforms have a sophistication that allows them to see data the way they need to see it. And that really speaks to why there's so much of a mess in programmatic advertising. This is an immensely sophisticated ecosystem. Right. And with the sophistication, there's complexity. And so to jump on board uh, and not make a mess of how you buy media, a lot of times you need someone to hold your hands and tell you 
where to find that transparency, what's important, what isn't. Um, but transparency is a critical conversation that we're having in this space right now. So Olivia, when we're talking about inventory quality, what are we talking about there? Are we talking about the quality of the content itself or just the breadth? Or what is inventory quality within this ecosystem? So it's a broad topic, <laughs> inventory quality. So it goes back a little bit to transparency. You have this question, where am I running? And sometimes there's a problem or programmatic has a bad rap where you're like, well, I don't know where I'm running because you're running on all these crappy sites. And unfortunately, there are a lot of bad actors in programmatic. Um, it's just, it, it's kind of like playing whack-a-mole sometimes, trying to root out the fraud, figure out all the problems. Um, and part of the, and you know, there are, there are definitely some terrible categories you don't want to be on. So, I don't know, like think of like porn or something like that. Obviously, if you're a reputable brand, you don't want to be on this kind of site. But it, that's obvious. But there's a lot more out there that's just kind of suspicious. Like maybe it's some like pizzabus.com website. There's nothing profane about it, but it just looks kind of shady. And it, sometimes these types of domains get themselves into ad exchanges and they show up on your buy. Now, there are ways to exclude this. So it, this is relatively easy to spot if you know what you're looking for. If you have an experienced trader, they can say, this site is not legit, I'm gonna cut it from the buy. So that's an inventory quality issue. Um, or uh, through algorithms, there are a lot of digital footprints of fraud, like high click rates, super high click rates, high indication of fraud. Really low CPMs, high indication of fraud. So you can look at all of these different elements and you can really build a quality buy and work with a trustworthy partner if you know what to look for and you know how to avoid it. And whoever you're working with should be willing to share with you what's going on in the buy, you know? Um, because there really should be nothing to hide. So that's kind of the basics okay. of inventory quality. So what I'm hearing sounds a lot like brand safety. Mark, can you, we were talking about that earlier tonight. Can you expand on that a little bit? When we're talking about brand safety, is that, was, was Olivia heading in that direction? Or is it different than what she was talking about? No, it's the same. So brand safety is showing up on a site that you want to show up on, or showing up next to content that you want to show up next to, or not show up next to. So there are partners out there that their livelihood is to scour the internet and see all the words on a page. And if the words include something that you don't want to show up next to, you won't. Um, Grapeshot is one of the vendors that, do, that does this. Uh, we work with them and we use them for two things. Sorry guys. If you want to show up next to them because it says migraine medicine and you're a migraine medicine provider, you can show up there because it's there. Or if you don't want to show up to next to rocket man or something like that, I don't know. <laughs> then they'll see that on the page and then you won't show up there because you have now blacklisted that from your list of keywords. So brand safety is something that is sensitive, but it's something that can be taken care of by the use of technology. And your programmatic vendor can help you with that. Just ask them. Okay, excellent. I wanna circle back um, because I know we are tech heavy here. I want to talk about the process a little bit and maybe you know, allude on that a little bit more. Um, again, the, the three different um, options here. And so, Olivia, could we talk a little bit about, again, it circles back to guaranteed, you know, no auction, set PM, guaranteed inventory. Again, I guess I'm just interested in that word guaranteed. What does that mean within this ecosystem? So, I think of guaranteed meaning you're going to be, let's say you contract a million impressions at a $5 CPM or something like that okay. with, um, uh, I, I forget the name of Time, Time Inc. You know, they have a lot of different properties. So let's say I talk to Time Inc. and I say, hey, I need to deliver at least a million impressions at this CPM. Can I get it? Right. They'll say, okay, right. no problem, we'll reserve that for you. Okay. Meaning the open market will not go in and steal your impressions. Got it. Yeah. Okay. So, Robert, I, just to circle back to the private marketplace for a little bit, 
if it's private, do these do these uh, publishers invite you to come in? Are they reaching out to different brands to say, "Hey, you might be a good fit for our site"? But how do how does a brand or how do you get an ad placed within a private exchange? Right. So um, there's a, there's a lot there, right? Because what that hits on is just as an aside, when programmatic advertising became a thing, salespeople freaked out. Ad networks yeah. were worried about being disrupted, and the thing is you still need publishers and pr inventory owners to generate demand for their great inventory. So you still need salespeople. And salespeople, what they do is they generate demand. So they, they advocate on behalf of their, their media property, their publisher, their ad network, whatever it is. And so it sort of harkens back to, there, there's two ways private marketplaces happen. One way is it harkens back to the way the world was before programmatic have lunches, we have dinners, we have phone calls, we have unsolicited emails. You know, people who have large networks reach out to people they haven't spoken to in five years. Hey, you work at Adara, which literally just happened to me the other day. You, hey, you work at Adara, I haven't spoke to, spoken to you in five years. Tell me about your private marketplace inventory. So there's still a level of human to human communication that still happens there. You set the price and then you set a deal ID and the transaction happens. Alternatively, uh, platforms like Choosel, MediaMath, TradeDesk, yeah. <laughs> um, they have pre-existing private marketplace deals that have already been incorporated into the platform. And then you can uh, sort of like click a, click a box and select that I want this type of inventory, I want to pay a $3 CPM, and you move forward with a, with a deal ID. So private marketplace fundamentally, to access a private, private marketplace deal, you have to have a seat uh, on one of the demand side platforms. You have to either have a pre-existing deal already being selected and negotiated by the platform, or you reach out to your favorite rep, have a conversation, they send you a deal ID, and you can turn on private marketplace inventory. Wow. Um, it's still happening on the open exchange, except fewer humans or fewer advertisers are bidding on that inventory, hence private. So you may, you may have hundreds of advertisers um, looking to buy a, an impression on CNN, which, is, which may be available to everyone. Uh, maybe just the homepage is being bid on by 20 different advertisers, and I'm making this up, I don't exactly know if, which inventory on CNN is available through private and, it, and, and is not. But the idea is you only have 20 different advertisers bidding on an inventory, so there's a floor. So you're gonna pay a minimum of, let's say, $5, and the price can go up to as much as 20, depending on the inherent demand for that particular uh, piece of inventory. Okay, thank you. So, Mark, on the open exchanges, and, and you guys can weigh in on this as well, who are the major players in this space, and how do they get to be the major players? So there's about seven or eight major advertising exchanges. Th those people who make the union between supply side, the publishers, and demand side, the brands, or the agencies that represent the brands. Uh, the major players are the ones with the technology, SpotX, Google, um, Casale and a few others. They're just the ones that, that, that allow you to have a seat on the exchanges. Um, how do they become big? They just, <laughs> they have Google. contracts. World They're Google, right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> World domination, is that all? Sure. <laughs> so they have the technology to allow you to, to connect the pipes between the publishers and the people that want to advertise on those publishers. So question, do they own their own networks? Do they own their own infrastructure? Or are they piggybacking on available networks that are out there? So I think before programmatic became big, <clears throat> there were networks. Networks were lists of IAB sites like travel sites that said, let's get together and we're now travel network. We're, we're travel.com and traveldiscovery.com, whatever it is. And we want to allow an advertiser to do buys across five different sites. When Programmatic came in, Programmatic said, well, let's just let everyone buy a, a cookie specific across no matter what site they're on. Um, I don't know if this is answering your question. Olivia, what do you think? I lost, I lost track. What was the question? <laughs> Basically, if, if they use their own um, actual networks or if yes. they're using, you know, there's no such thing as just the, the internet by itself anymore, yeah. but an actual, do they have their own networks to yeah. conduct these transactions? So, okay, so, and we're talking about ad exchanges, right? Yeah, exactly. Okay, so examples of ad exchanges are Google Ad Exchange, OpenX, Index Exchange. These are like the three major 
ad exchanges. Okay. So these these are the lowest level of that that stack that I talked about. DSP, okay. SSP, ad exchange. So they're at the bottom. They're aggregators of inventory that they don't own. So even though Google has an ad exchange, you aren't buying inventory on Google.com. We all know what Google.com is. There's no ad there. You know, so it's all of these other websites plugging into Google Ad Exchange. If you're building a website and you build a little slot, you know, 728 by 90, and you want your ad to show there, then you plug into Google Ad Exchange on the publisher side. So they don't okay. own the inventory. Okay. So the next question I have, we're, we're moving away from networks for a little bit, but let's talk about mobile a little bit. I would assume that that's a whole different animal of doing programmatic for mobile users. So can we talk about some of the opportunities and the challenge that mobile presents? And you have the mic, so you start. Sure, I'll start. <laughs> so I've worked in programmatic long enough where we had to figure out how to do mobile. It was before anyone had smartphones, and then everyone has smartphones, and we're like, oh crap, how do we advertise on here? And no one knew how. So I've seen this whole evolution, and when it started up until probably like a couple years ago, yeah, mobile was this completely separate thing, but really a more modern way to approach it is just cross-device. You center around the person and all of the different devices that they touch during the day on my smart TV, my phone, my work computer, my home computer, <coughs> my tablet, you center your media more around the person and less so around the device. Okay. But that being said, right. there's a lot of cool things you can do on mobile because it's location. And then the other complication with mobile is there are two primary environments in mobile. There's a web browser and there's an app. And you get ads on both but the, it's not the same in terms of how it's executed, how it's targeted. You know, if you're in a mobile web browser, there's cookies, it looks kind of like a normal thing, but an app is like this completely separate thing. And for a long time as mobile was coming up, we couldn't even run on apps programmatically right. because they're not part of the ecosystem. They're this whole other environment. Right. And they don't use cookies. So Mark, um, do we all know the scene from Minority Report with Tom Cruise when he's walking down the, the hallway and all these ads are speaking to him from the stores? Hey, you know, it's not Tom, whatever his character's name was. Come in here. Hey, this is in your size. How far away are we from that within programmatic? Pretty much there. We're here. Yeah. We're here. Okay. So all of your phones have a device ID. <clears throat> Show up at a location. They can recognize that you're there. So Whole Foods is an example of this. If you're nearby... Whole Foods if, can advertise to you in an app or in a web, mobile web environment. Um, looking back, so I'm in San Francisco, so Moscone Center is a very popular convention center in San Francisco. Uh, we can say on September 1st, I want to hit all the mobile IDs that were at the Moscone Center with ads. Uh, and there's technology that exists that allow us to, to do that. And we can look back and say, I want to show people, because it was a Salesforce conference, I want to show them my NetSuite ad because they were there. Um, so that technology exists and it's mobile beacons and it's, it's mobile geo-based targeting technology. Okay. So Tom Cruise is out there and we can advertise to him. All right, so moving from mobile to TV. I'll trade you an empty for a It's not working. You know, people have built really nice houses and drive really nice cars by selling media space on, ad, on networks, broadcast, and cable. So the chart that's up now is from Business Insider Intelligence. You can start to see that growth. Um, it's still small compared to the total ad spend, but we all know that it's probably going to be a hockey stick pretty soon, right? That's how technology goes. It starts out slow hockey stick all the way up. So can we talk a little bit um, from, and I'd like input from each panelist on programmatic for buying on television and you know, broadcast and cable networks and radio for that matter. So we're entering the space. <clears throat> As we go away from airwaves feeding your television, you go to a place where you're accessing the internet, your cable box, just the same as your mobile device is, your computer is. We can programmatically advertise to your television the same we can to your computer. Um, and this is a rapidly growing space. Right now, Hulu's doing it, um, but you know, as, as Xfinity and Comcast and all these 
AT&T providers are taking over, um, they're going to be doing the same thing. So if you're watching Dancing with the Stars, the commercial I see is going to be very different from the commercial that Olivia sees. Um, and we're entering this space now, and that's about as, as much as I can say. Like it's, it's, it's addressable television, and it's programmatic television, and it's happening. Wow. I think, Olivia? Uh, Olivia? Yeah, so the umbrella, the umbrella term for all of this. So right now, buying TV uh, programmatically, it's very fragmented. You know, you got Hulu one way, you have to buy your NBC right. app another one, you can buy connected TV another way, you know, YouTube is even kind of part of that. So this whole umbrella term for this, the correct umbrella term is advanced TV. So any sort, or OTT is another common acronym, if you didn't get enough acronyms, over the top. So anything that streams to a device is the new form of TV. And if anyone in here has watched, anyone under 12 watch TV, <laughs> you can see that this chart, this blue bar is just gonna keep growing because right. of how people consume media. How kids watch TV today is not how you and I watch TV. And it, this, so that's why it's going to change. And this is just my own personal, my own personal opinion. I feel like sports licensing is that last, you know, that last bastion of TV. Right. This is why you keep your cable subscription so you can right. keep TV. But Amazon is now streaming NFL on Thursday mm -hmm. nights. I feel like this this is the beginning of the end, my friends. I think when Amazon <laughs> <laughs> takes over football, uh, TV as you know it is gone. Robert? So if you have $1,000 and you have a 30-second or 15-second video, you can run ads on connected televisions tomorrow. So Hulu, Crackle, Apps, ESPN, ABC, HGTV, it's pretty darn straightforward. And this, this sort of speaks to the sort of importance of the demand side platform. The demand side platform is your centralized place where you're buying these, adver these advertising solutions, where you're buying th these ads. And so through these advertising uh, demand side platforms, upload the video, start running ads to a DMA or a city, and serve ads on connected devices. So either you're reaching folks who are high net worth or early adopters, Maybe they've cut the cord completely and they don't have access to broadcast or cable TV, or maybe they still do, but we all know that people watch a lot of connected TV at this point. Um, but the idea is, through these platforms, it's scalable. It's scalable for small and mid-sized advertisers, and that's the part that's interesting to, to our business in particular, because that's who we serve, small and mid-sized advertisers and their agencies. Um, and so whether it's hyper-local targeting, you want to serve ads, $1,000 around a, a radius, five mile radius for your restaurant, or you want to serve television ads to a high net worth, forward looking, uh, 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 early adopters on your connected television, programmatic advertising, aka digital advertising, aka advertising, right? Programmatic should go away. That is such a messy, jargony term. I love it because it makes me sound smart, but the rest of it, <laughs> at least I think so, I don't know, maybe not. But the reality is, it needs to go away. You can't actually have a conversation about programmatic for anyone who doesn't understand it. That's, that's a lot of people. So you talk about hyperlocal, you talk about connected televisions, and the scalability and the accessibility of it is now at a point where small and mid-sized agencies and advertisers can transact on it with ease. No barriers. So I have two more questions. Um, the first is, uh, let's talk about artificial intelligence. Is that, I mean, it's like anything, it's gonna make inroads. Where are we with AI within your industry? And I, if, you know, whatever, how Livia and Mark, if you wanna weigh in on this as well, I'd love to hear your perspective about where we're at with that. I mean, uh, programmatic advertising is built on automation and artificial intelligence. So if you're buying ads on Facebook, Google, Choose any one of these platforms, you're using a level of automation and algorithmic decisioning to make smarter ad serving decisions. Uh, it gets better, it gets smarter. Um, there are people with PhDs and they talk, you know, they sound like rocket scientists and they say really smart things that I halfway don't understand. <laughs> the end result is that they're making advertising for users of these platforms much easier. And so it's so easy that platforms like Choosel, like you can, you don't have to have seven or 10 years in advertising to turn on Choosel. You literally just have to have access and it's very easy to do. So that's, 
that's why advertising starts to become scalable to small and mid-sized advertisers. And um, algorithmic decisioning in AI is, is I, I understand like it's at a, you know, listening to NPR, generally speaking across industries, is that like at a second or third grade level? Think about what happens when it becomes like a, a teenager, 15, 16, 17 years old, and has that knowledge and skill set. I, 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 I literally can't imagine what that does for our industry, but it'll be cool to watch. And Olivia, your 86-year-old company, I'm sure, is at the forefront of artificial intelligence, right? Because it's so it's amazing that you guys are in this space to begin with. We actually are. Yes. <laughs> so I see AI really hitting this industry in a couple of ways. So if you work at an advertising agency today, you spend a ton of time planning media. You research the audience, you figure out how much it should cost, how much budget should go to this or that, and, and what kind of targeting. I'm gonna target moms and do a test, one soccer mom versus healthy mom versus whatever. You spend so much time planning. And I really think the promise of AI is going to revolutionize the planning process. So just like we no longer have to click through every single Netflix show to pick what we want to watch, it just suggests all these things we magically <laughs> want to watch. Right. I think that's what's going to happen to audience planning with AI. So you're in your DSP or your piece of software trying to figure out, okay, how do I set up this campaign? Oh, it just suggests all these audiences for you. Like, I, I think modern day audience planning today is going to become obsolete soon. Um, the other thing that, and this is where Goodway Group is cutting edge, is AI is changing how we bid for media. So how it works right now, if I'm a media buyer and I go in a DSP and I have to set up this campaign, I have to set it up with all these targeting parameters. So let's say I want to target women uh, on CNN.com, uh, women on CNN.com, let's just keep it simple. And my campaign runs, and then I'm noticing that in the morning, at between seven and 10, my campaign does really well, but after six, it doesn't do well at all. So in a lot of different platforms, what you'd have to do is set up a different line item. You're like, okay, so I'm going to, you know, bid $5 for my 7 a.m. CNN women, and I'm going to bid only $2 for my 6 p.m. CNN women, because those impressions aren't worth as much to me. So now you've got two line items. So imagine you're trying to optimize all these campaign variables as one person. You can't physically do that as right. one person. So my point is what AI is going to do is it's going to analyze all of these campaign parameters on the back end and it's going to bid the right price for the right impression. It's going to be true one-to-one -one valuation and that is the promise of machine learning, algorithms, uh, AI, whatever you want to call it. Right. These, are, these are some of the big impacts in programmatic media where you're going to see it. Okay, I want to leave time for Q&A. Um, so I've got one more thing that I want to uh, just talk about really quickly. And so this was a story on October 5th on Business Insider by the, the chief of brands for uh, Procter & Gamble. And you all can read it. But I think this is a very aggressive statement. They, he basically said, we cut out $100 million of wasteful spending, which means he's talking about digital. He's talking about programmatic because we couldn't be assured the ads would not appear next to bad content. Well, sure, we're all aware of that that, that does happen. We've talked about it earlier tonight. But I find this, this statement pretty fascinating because he's taking a position on it, saying it doesn't matter. We cut $100 million out of our budget and we still met our sales objectives. So I think, as anybody in the industry, you should be paying attention to this attitude. And I'd like to hear from the panelists, how do you guys feel about this, right? Do you guys love conspiracy theories? Yes. Uh, what's <laughs> funny, so P&G, you can't argue with P&G or, or you know, any of these guys. Um, but we kinda, we've heard a, a conspiracy theory about Mark Pritchard and saying that he wants less entrance into the programmatic digital advertising space so that they have a lower CPM. Yeah. Huh. Huh. Maybe that's a crazy conspiracy theory. Maybe he's got a point. Um, either way you look at it, I feel like 
he's right to say that you should have more transparency. And maybe that's me playing up to this whole notion of we're all selling something, but our programmatic platform allows transparency. What sites are you showing up on and what's your CPM? That's what we provide. And so when I think Mark Pritchard from Procter & Gamble spends millions and billions of dollars on advertising, if you don't know where your ads are showing up and if you don't know if they're even showing up at all or next to you know, really bad, weird things, then you should get a handle on that. And yep. what you want to do is you want to start running tests. If, if I'm spending, in his case, hundreds of millions of dollars a month or whatever on digital advertising, and if it's not providing a lift, then don't. <laughs> right. But right. do some tests. Right. Run it. Do it yourself. Get in there and, and, and figure it out. Um, and, and that's what you can use a, a programmatic platform to do and a DSP to do and, and figure it out. Olivia? I got off course. Before I give my answer, is anyone in here friends with Mark Pritchard? <laughs> or do you work for P&G? No, okay. So, <laughs> in my humble opinion, I think, uh, so Mark Pritchard has been in Ad Age pretty much every other day this year talking about this topic. <laughs> And rightly so, there, he has some legitimate concerns and I understand them. Uh, I think his approach with this kind of a statement might be a little provocative um, because he's trying to play the P&G card, right? Mm -hmm. And get this done. So what really kind of just, I don't know, makes me roll my eyes is the last sentence. We still delivered our sales growth objectives proving it was smart to do. Exactly. So here's the thing though. He is the, the CMO or brand chief officer, whatever he is of P&G, he knows that digital is the future. He knows he cannot pull out of digital. This is a very short-sighted viewpoint. Sure, you stop running ads for one month. Are you gonna sell less Tide? Probably not, but two, three years down the road, you know, you can't lose that market share. Procter & Gamble is a marketing company and the, and the impact of advertising is cumulative. So, you know, you just can't, it, this is short term. So anyway, he's just being provocative, but yes, there are some changes that need to be made. Robert? Okay, so um, <clears throat> digital advertising, $83 billion business in 2017, about 42, $43 billion is display advertising. Display is everything that's not search, not email, not affiliate marketing. So it's video, banners across the devices, native advertising. About 78% of that is transacted programmatically. So that's about $32 billion. So I'm cool. It's $32 billion and it's growing. If you look at the chart from eMarketer, it's increasing. It is the de facto way that transactions are happening through, pro, through uh, digital media. It's becoming the way that transactions are happening, or it's slowly making inroads into how out-of-home advertising is being transacted, into how television and connected devices, uh, connected TVs are being transacted, how audio is being transacted. You can listen to your local, you can listen to Power 106 on a digital device and hear uh, an ad, a radio, an audio ad that's bought programmatically. So, um, so that's cool. Uh, look, data can be manipulated in a lot of different ways, and whether he has whether he has a point of lowering CPMs, or whether this is the actual truth of what happened with his data, with his sales, whether it impacts his sales over the next two to five years, which I think it will if he continues on this path, that's cool. The marketplace, not just one company, the marketplace is saying that 78 of percent of transactions, of digital display transactions, are happening programmatically. Programmatic is. Equals pro, uh, digital advertising, and in a few years, programmatic. The term will go away. It'll just be called advertising. So, does he have an indictment on advertising? I don't know. Maybe, but we've always had challenges with advertising. Historically, we don't know which piece of the pie is actually driving the sales, but we know collectively that if you stop advertising or you lower advertising, or if you change the magic mix, something stops working, and you don't want to be the CMO or the head of, head of the brand that changes the magic formula and now sales are down, whether it's your fault or not, or whether it has to do with market forces. So this is one, one person, a big brand, that's cool, but the marketplace has spoken. Programmatic advertising is here to stay. And on that note, let's thank our panel. Let's give it up.
All right, so we've got about 10 minutes for Q&A. Who wants to lead off? Okay, we have a gentleman in the back. Okay, so you talk about guaranteed impressions. And uh, let's say that Advertiser A buys a nice size budget guaranteed impressions. And let's say some of those impressions wind up on a website that I happen to go to fairly often. Uh, but I have an ad block. So that impression never gets made. We're not running the ad. Yeah. My understanding, and you know, we're not running the ad, so we're not paying for the ad. So you didn't get served an ad, the publisher didn't make any money, hmm. not you specifically, but the argument against ad blockers is you're blocking, you're, you're, you're depriving the publisher of earning a revenue. And so certainly some publishers throw events, they have data, they, they sell research, so there's other revenue streams for publishers. But fundamentally, uh, advertising is a big factor in running, in running, um, in earning revenue. So ad blockers are depriving the publisher of earning money. But we're not. My understanding is we're not paying for it. If I'm wrong, please correct me. No, I didn't say that. Yeah. Okay. The ad is blocked. It's not getting served. So, but that, but that, that still is a problem because I can't reach you. I need to reach you in an alternative device, unless you have ad blockers everywhere, or you, you know. There, we will reach you some way, just won't be with that impression. But yeah, it's a problem. There's, there's, a, there's an ad blocking challenge in our marketplace, but still, it still doesn't change the overall economic value or value proposition for digital and programmatic advertising. Did, did that answer your question, or was there something more nuanced there? So the answer that you're looking for is highly technical in nature, <laughs> uh, which I am not prepared to give. But pretty much there's an ad server, which is just like a normal computer server, right? It gives the information to your screen. So there's a huge chain of events that happens in between the ad server and the ad that you see on that page. Somewhere in that chain of events, it's going to get blocked from rendering. So, that's, so that means the publisher doesn't get paid, the advertiser doesn't pay, you don't see the ad. It just it stops in the process of getting served. Yeah. yeah. Do you have anything to add to that? You're just missing out some great advertising. <laughs> <laughs> Interest-based advertising. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move on. So do we, do, do we I, I want to move on. Do we have any other questions? If not, we'll circle back. But is there another question? Logan. IP targeted cookie free advertising. Okay, so where you're targeting a group of IP addresses. Yeah. Yeah, so it can be a really cool targeting method. We've used it in a couple different cases. So you, you need to get groups of IP addresses to get any kind of scale. So we have targeted like um, groups of universities or groups of hospitals. So if you want to reach like college students or something like that, you can, there's like a database of IP, known IP addresses for universities and you can target that. So yeah, it's just another targeting tactic and it can be cool if it fits your needs. Is there a follow up there? I think it's great. ABM, account-based marketing, B2B. Um, if you want to reach this building, we can target this building based on their IP address and advertise to the people that have the IP address associated with this building. Um, so for a business trying to reach a business, it makes a lot of sense. Yes, sir. Uh, do any of you guys have any vision as to any um, regulatory um, roadblocks you are anticipating in the world of programmatic? Because it's still pretty new, and so we know the government is slow to react, but sometimes can overreact when that potentially that is happening in the wrong so in your field, can you think of any regular, regulatory concerns you guys have now? Good question. Good to be concerned. I think in the UK, there are some different laws than we have in the US. Um, when you visit certain sites, they say like, oh, here's our cookie policy. Or by checking this box or by clicking yes, you agree to our policy. Do you read that policy? No Chances are no. Um, that sounds like I'm 
being insensitive, but if you use Evite or if you do anything, there are little things that happen that let the internet know that like you have kids. Um, yeah. Is that bad? That's a source of debate too. Like, do you want relevant advertising? Would you rather see ads for orthopedic shoes or would you rather see ads for like the sweaters that you like? I go for the latter. Um, maybe there's some source of regulatory thing that might happen that might derail our whole thing and we have to try to pivot, but I don't see it happening. Um, is that the, what do you think? Olivia? Same. In the U.S., okay. there isn't anything big brewing on the horizon other than just like regular privacy stuff. But in Europe right now, there's this big mm. thing going on called GDPR, where pretty much you're not allowed to track anything. Uh, so Europe, it's a lot different. But in the U.S., it's more, uh, it's just, there isn't, it's not a problem. For us? By centralized model, do you mean like a hub where you can go in and opt out of no. different types of tracking? Or? What I mean is five large corporations controlling most of the world data, right? Facebook's in the world, Google's, big guys that are buying more properties. Yeah. And therefore they control more real estate on the web. Yeah. Well, in philosophy, I like this idea. In so as Mark was saying, he's like, well, would you rather, uh, he was saying the benefit of data targeting is that you get more relevant ads, and that's true. I would say the greater benefit is you get Instagram and Google Maps and Facebook, and you get all this cool stuff completely for free. And since we get this for free, then, I don't know, these guys are gonna control the data. So I think it's more, are we willing to move to a subscription model where we pay for email now? And then as, as a result, since we have the dollars and we're controlling uh, the subscription, then we'd have more of a say. But when we're willingly consuming all of this, it's hard for us to have a say because that's the price you're paying. Yeah. So, I Robert, if I could place a bet, when you look at when you go to the market and you buy your cereal, five companies supply all the cereal. When you look at the news that you get, five companies supply the news that you're getting, which is why you have like crossovers when you're watching football on ESPN, you have like the Star Wars stormtroopers, like it makes no sense. In some ways it does, but like, you know what I'm saying, like all this weird crossover stuff happening. Point is, following that trend, it kind of makes sense that you're going to have five companies controlling the data. And yeah, I mean, blockchain, you know, the, the blockchain world is, is fascinating. There's companies like MetaX, which are looking to uh, completely transparently show uh, supply chain transactions um, using um, distributed technologies, uh, the supply chain, the blockchains, uh, or crypto, you know, cryptocurrencies. So, so the point of that is to say, I would bet that it, rem that it remains the status quo. I don't think that there's going to be any significant disruption unless the government starts to like um, control the way data is shared and, and not shared and whatnot. But I, but I am rooting for cryptocurrencies, man. Bitcoin is up to like fifty-two, fifty-four hundred dollars today. Wow. Fifty-six? Yes. Wow. All right. Let's give it up for our panel. Thank you very much. So we'll ha we have about 20 minutes or so, but before we wrap this portion of it, I just want to um, let everybody know that the AMA National and both local chapter have a relationship with the American Red Cross. 
And with everything going on in the world with Harvey and Irma and the devastating fires up in Northern California, please visit the Red Cross. If you can donate, that would be great. I have a friend that owns a vineyard up there. The story that I heard from here was one of the scariest things I've ever heard in my entire life. Literally minutes to get out of their house and gone. So if you can donate, we encourage it. That ends our public service announcement for the evening. And thank you very much for coming. You've been listening to the AMA Los Angeles podcast. For more information on the American Marketing Association's Los Angeles chapter and to find out about upcoming events, follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. This podcast was produced by Joel Metzger and Ice Box Logic.